This morning we come to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. John defines sin at its most basic root. It's lawlessness. It's a disregard for the law of God, which is inherently a disregard for the lawmaker. When we disregard God's law, we're disregarding the one who made the law, and that's God himself. You know, I often think that we fail in the battle against sin because we won't call sin for what it is. We won't call it lawlessness. We won't call it an offense against the great lawmaker who's God himself. We all want to minimize our sin. It's just human fallen nature to want to take whatever we do and put it in the best possible terms. When politicians do it, they call that spin control. An event happens and we think that, you know, we can put a spin on it to, well, make it look not so bad and really it's okay. And, you know, if you think politicians are good at it, we're pretty good at it ourselves, aren't we? Don't we know how to come before God and sort of pray a prayer of forgiveness that isn't a prayer of forgiveness at all? Like we'll come before God and say, Lord, well, like maybe if I've done anything wrong, I'm kind of sorry for it. What do you mean, if you've done anything wrong? If you haven't done anything wrong, there's no need for you to confess. And if you have done something wrong, well, then you just need to confess it instead of making excuses. Or how about this one? Well, Lord, you know that some mistakes were made. Mistakes were made? What's that? Friends, we've got to take a look at it and see it for what it is. It's sin. It's lawlessness. It's breaking the law of God, and it's offending the great lawmaker. Now, you know, some people think, well, you know, I don't break God's law that much. I don't sin that much. I guess I'm, I'm not in too bad of a case before, but I want you to think of God's law as being like a great chain that stretches from heaven to earth, and there it is along this great chain, and, and every link on that chain is one of God's laws. You might say, well, you know, I've only broken four or five links. I guess it's okay. But once you break a link in a chain, it's gone. The chain is ruined. You only have to break one link for the chain to be broken. And so John won't let us do that. He'll tell us that, well, sin is lawlessness. We are lawbreakers. Now, if John has kind of gotten in our face and defined sin at its most basic root, he's also going to define the work of Jesus at its most basic root. You saw verse 5 where he says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. John defines the ministry of Jesus by saying, He came to take away our sins. You know, I love what the angel Gabriel told Joseph uh, before Joseph uh, wanted to 
put away Mary because she miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph didn't really know whether to believe that story or not. But uh, he, he thought maybe he wouldn't, that he'd just put her away and divorce her quietly and maybe he'd allow her to keep some dignity and such. But the angel Gabriel came to Joseph in a dream and in speaking to him about this son that would be the, well, the adopted son of Joseph, the angel Gabriel said to, said to Joseph, he said, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sin. That's why Jesus came to take away our sin, to save us from our sin. In other words, when you receive the coming of Jesus, it's got to change something in your life regarding sin, right? Now, I think it's interesting when we think about what sense does Jesus take away our sin? Well, I can think of at least three distinct ways that Jesus takes away our sin. Number one, he takes away the penalty of sin. Aren't you grateful for that this morning? Aren't you grateful that that you've sinned and you owe a penalty to God, but you don't have to pay that penalty because Jesus has paid it on your behalf? Man, that's thrilling. Because the penalty my sin deserved is hell. But Jesus paid that penalty. Jesus took the penalty of my sin and of the sin of everybody who trusts in him. And friends, that's immediately accomplished when somebody comes by faith to Jesus. He takes away the penalty of our sin. But then Jesus also takes away the power of sin in our life. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, something that once gripped you, something that you couldn't stop sinning in, something that was an uncontrollable urge or desire, Jesus Christ has come and done a work in your life, and that sin doesn't have the same power in your life that it once had. Now, I'm not saying you can't go out and do that sin if you were determined to do it, but you know what it was like before when almost this darkness would come over you and there was a power driving you within to to commit that sin. And now the power of that sin is broken. Well, friends, that's what Jesus does in our life. He takes away the power of our sin. And I think this is an ongoing work in the life of those who walk after Jesus. So in the past, he's taken away the penalty of our sin. Right now, he's taking away the power of our sin. But there's one more thing that he's going to do. He's going to take away the presence of sin. Kind of like that. There's, there's three Ps all in a row right there, right? There, the, the penalty, the power, and then finally the presence. And one day the presence of sin is going to be taken away. Won't that be great? And I'll tell you, whatever sin problem you have in your life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're struggling with some area of sin, you want to serve God, you, you've got your, your life focused and directed in the right place after Jesus, but you're still battling with sin, I'm here to tell you that that struggle with sin is temporary. There's going to come a day when you're not going to struggle with sin anymore. You're not going to face another temptation ever again. You're going to be in glory with Jesus Christ and the even presence of sin will be removed. And that's in the future. So in the past, Jesus has done something. He's taken away the penalty of sin. Right now, he's taking away the power of sin. And in the future, even the presence of sin will be gone. But do you notice something in our text? Whose job is it to take away these things? Look at it in verse 5. He says, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. In other words, it's his job. Friends, you cannot take away the penalty of your own sin. Try as hard as you like. You can't remove your own penalty of sin. 
You could uh, climb up to the highest mountain on your knees until your knees were bloody and then up there make a sacrifice to God and give everything you have and even uh, kill yourself in some sick attempt to glorify God. You could do all that. You know, it wouldn't remove one bit of the penalty of sin that you have before God. You could say, well, I'm going to go to church every Sunday and I'm going to give all my money and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to be nice from here on out. I'll do everything. Even if you could do it, it wouldn't take away the penalty of your sin. Friends, that's Jesus' work. It says he was manifested to take away our sin. And instead, we just must receive the work of Jesus in cleansing us from sin. Then again, we can't take away the power of sin in our lives, can we? You've tried, haven't you? You've come from the grit-your-teeth school of walking with God, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to please God. I'm going to love Him. I'm going to serve Him. Oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And, and all the power, all the strength is just trying to rise up from your own will. You're going to willpower your way into serving God. And I'll tell you two things. One of two things is guaranteed going to happen. Either you're going to fail or you're going to succeed. And either way, you lose. Because let's say you, you, you fail in the willpower school of following God. Well, when you fail in, in doing that, you're just more discouraged than ever. I tried and I tried and I tried. Yeah, but you're just trying in your own strength. No wonder. You're just gritting your teeth and doing the best. You, all the power is coming from you. Well, so you fail. Well, on the other hand, maybe you succeed. Can I just say if you succeed, you're even in, in even more trouble? If you succeed... Then you're going you're gonna to hurt yourself, patting yourself on the back. Yeah, look how holy I am. You know, Lord, I did it. You know, Lord, I, it was, and, and even if you don't say it, that consciousness will be in the back of your mind that it was your own will, it was your own strength, it was your own power, and Satan in hell just laughs because he's just gotten you to exchange one sin for a worse one, and that's pride. So friends, it doesn't work to try to muster up the power from within ourselves. He came to take away our sins, and He's going to take away the power of sin in our lives. Friends, do you realize that you don't have to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus Christ? You don't have to, uh, you know, clean this out of your life and clean this, okay, and then I can come to Jesus. You can come to Jesus just as you are right now, and He'll clean you up. Now, whenever I talk to people about this, you know, if I'm telling them about the Lord, a lot of times I get a, a question back. They say, well, can I still do this and be a Christian? You ever heard that? And you can just fill in the blank. I'm not even going to say something because it can be anything, right? Well, can I still do this and be a Christian? Can I still do that? You know, I'll be a Christian if I can still do this. Well, what are you going to say? Are you going to say, no, you have to give that up before you can come to Jesus? Well, I don't know. Then you're saying you've got to clean yourself up before you come to the Lord. So I don't say that. You know what I tell them? I say, if you come to Jesus, you have to be willing to let him take that out of your life. Now, if you're not willing, if you say, you know what, Jesus or no Jesus, I'm holding on to this. Then, you know what, then don't even bother coming to Jesus because you're not submitting your life to him. You want to come to Jesus on your terms. Say, well, I'll come to Jesus as long as I can have this too. But if you'll come to Jesus just as you are and say, Lord, I'm willing for you to take this out of my life, then just watch what the Lord will do. He came to take away our sin. Well, of course, too, we can't take away the penalty of sin. We can't take away the power of sin in our lives. And we can't even take away the presence of sin. That's going to be accomplished when we meet the Lord in glory. He came. He was manifested to take away our sins. And why? Well, because in him there is no sin. 
You know, Jesus had no sin to take away, did he? When he hung on that cross, it wasn't for his sin. It wasn't for his penalty. It wasn't the power of his own sin that he had to battle with. It was all that the sin that God the Father put upon him, our sin, that he bore on the cross. Now, he's going to go on in verse 6 and show us kind of logical consequences to what he's talked about in verses 4 and 5. He says, verse 6, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, friends, it's pretty simple. Since sin is lawlessness, which is a disregard for God, and since Jesus came to take away our sins, and since in him there is no sin, well, then to abide in him means to not sin. Read it again, verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Now, please, nobody raise your hand, but if I think we took kind of an informal poll here, and ask who here in this last week has sinned. I think we'd see a lot of, well, if we didn't see any hands, then you just sinned right now by lying. <laughs> and I guess we could say, well, I guess if you sinned last week, the Bible says if you abide in him, you do not sin. If you're born of him, you do not sin. Well, if you sinned last week, I guess you're not in him. I guess you're going to hell. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? But friends, it's very important to understand what the Bible means and what it does not mean when John says here, he does not sin. Now please follow me closely because this is a very important point. In the English language and in our grammar structure, we basically have three verb tenses that we're aware of. You can talk about something happening in the past, you can talk about something happening in the present, or you can talk about something happening in the future. We're all keyed into that, past, present, future. And right now we read in and says, well, uh, you know, it just sounds like the present tense. John said, well, if there's sin in my life, then I don't abide in him and I'm not born in him, I must be going to hell. I guess I don't know that I'm saved until I'm sinlessly perfect. Is that what John's saying? No. Because even though in English grammar we really focus just on three verb tenses, in the language that the New Testament was originally written in, that's an ancient form of the Greek language, in that language there are more than three verb tenses. And the verb tense that is used in these passages where it says, verse 5, does not sin, whoever sins, and going on throughout these several verses where it talks about a person practicing sin, the verb tense that's used in the ancient Greek language is the verb tense that grammar people call the present tense in ancient Greek. But what it means is a present and habitually continuing action. It doesn't mean an occasional sin. John is not speaking about occasional acts of sin. The grammar of 1 John 3, 6 and throughout this passage indicates that John is speaking of a settled, continued lifestyle of sin. My friends, John is not talking about the possibility of sinless perfection. He's already blown that out of the water. Back in John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, just turn back there. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John recognizes that every Christian occasionally sins. And when I say occasionally, I don't mean, you know, once every three weeks. Sin is a constant presence in our life. At the same time, if it's a dominating, habitual practice of your lifestyle then there's something very wrong. 
I think the New International Version has the right idea when it translates these verbs with phrases such as keeps on sinning, continues to sin, and he cannot go on sinning. John's saying that if Jesus Christ is coming to your life, if the sinless one is coming to your life, there's a change there, and it changes your relationship to sin. Friends, John's message is plain and consistent with the rest of the Scriptures. A lifestyle of habitual sin is inconsistent with the life of abiding in Jesus Christ. A true Christian can only be temporarily in a lifestyle of sin. Friends, Paul teaches on this exact same topic in Romans chapter 6, and it's a great example of this principle. He shows us that when a person comes to Jesus, when their sins are forgiven, and when God's grace is extended to them, they're radically changed. The old man is dead and the new man lives. So it's utterly incompatible for a new creation in Christ to be comfortable in habitual sin. Such a place can only be temporary for the Christian. Now, friends, I don't know if you've ever had a time in your life, maybe some of you are in this place right now, uh, many Christians describe it as a place of backsliding, where you find yourself, uh, your heart's cold towards the things of God, and, and you're in a place of sin or rebellion. Maybe it's a place of overt rebellion, where you're out really committing sinful acts. Maybe the sin and rebellion is just a quiet thing in your heart, but it's just as defiant and just as rebellious as anything else. And friends, in this place, and and when you're in this place that many people call being a backslidden Christian, friends, you can't stay there if you're a child of God. It's only a temporary place. Staying there is not an option. And, And if you're really a child of God, and you're in this backslidden place, honestly now, you're miserable, aren't you? You're not comfortable there. You know I don't belong here. Matter of fact, you're in the worst of all places. Friends, to be a backslidden Christian is the worst of all places because you've got too much of the world in you to be happy in the Lord and you've got too much of the Lord in you to be happy in the world. And you're just getting beat on both sides. Well, friends, you can't stay there. You just can't stay. You've got to leave that behind and come to Jesus Christ. You've got to turn your back on that. And friends, in many ways, the question is not, do you sin or not? Of course we each sin. The question is, how do you react when you sin? Do you give in to the pattern of sin? And do you let it dominate your lifestyle? Or do you humbly confess your sin? And do you do battle against it with the power that Jesus can give you? Friends, that's why it's so grieving. It's so grieving for me as a pastor to see Christians make excuses for their sin and not humbly confess it. Because unless your sin is honestly and squarely dealt with, it's going to contribute to a pattern of sin that will soon become your lifestyle. And perhaps it may be a secret lifestyle, but it's a lifestyle nonetheless. My friends, we should never sign a peace treaty, so to speak, with sin. We should never wink at its presence or excuse it by saying, well, you know, everybody has their sinful areas, and well, this is just mine. Jesus understands. Well, can I tell you, Jesus does understand, and that's why he died on the cross, to free you from the power of that sin and to put it out of your life. No, my friends, to live a lifestyle of habitual sin is to demonstrate something. It's to demonstrate that look at the end of verse 6, that you have not seen him or known him. 
I suppose that in this world there are some people so wonderful, so great, so famous, so whatever, that if you were to see them or meet them, it would really impress itself on you. You'd be a different person. I mean, you know, I got to shake that person's hand. I got to spend an hour with them and talk with them. I'll never forget it. I'll never wash my hand again. It's made an impression on you. you you've been changed because you've met and seen that person. Friends, can I tell you that as much as that might be true of some remarkable person on this planet Earth, it is infinitely more true of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what John is saying is, is you cannot see Jesus, you cannot know Jesus, and be unchanged. It's just impossible. So if you say that you've seen Him, if you say that you've known Him, and your life is unchanged, something's wrong there. You haven't really met him. You haven't really seen him in the figurative sense that John means. Going on now to verse 7. It says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Now that seems to be such a plain, straightforward statement, right? He who practices righteousness is righteous. But John wants to make it clear to us, and and John won't allow us to divorce a religious righteousness or a spiritual righteousness from a life of righteousness. Because every once in a while, we get thinking this way, don't we? Well, you know, spiritually, I'm righteous. But, you know, my life, I'm doing all these other things. You know, yeah, I'm really righteous, spiritually. You say, well, where's that righteousness showing up in your life? Well, I I guess that's not important. I'm spiritually righteous. Well, my friends, it is important to be spiritually righteous, to have that right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But if you do have that right standing, it's going to show up somewhere in your life. Now, friends, all the changes aren't immediate. All the changes aren't complete. It'll never be completed until we're glorified with the Lord. But there should be evidence of some kind of change. So friends, John is not saying that we're made righteous before God by our own righteous acts. The Bible clearly teaches us that we're made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, yet that righteousness will be evident in our lives. Why? Because He's righteous. You saw that at the the end of verse 7. Just as He is righteous. We've been given the righteousness of Jesus and He is righteous. We have the resource we need to live rightly. Now, I don't know if, if you feel like the Lord's been kind of speaking to you so far, but wait till we get to verses 8 and 9 here. He who sins is of the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Friends, John is telling, something, uh, some, telling us something very plain, very challenging, isn't it? And there's no way to escape this. John isn't soft-selling anything. He's not equivocating. He's just laying it right on the line. And he's saying, listen, if your life is lived in that habitual, continual sin, you think God's your father? No, the devil's your father. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. My friends, he says plainly, 
For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. I think it's amazing. Back in verse 5, he gave us one reason why Jesus was manifested, right? What was one reason? To take away our sin. What's the other reason? Why? So that he might destroy the works of the devil. And you could just see the heart of God grieving over the destruction that the devil's wrought on this earth and grieving that man has allowed the devil to do it. Yeah, that's what I said. I said that man has allowed the devil to do it. Sometimes we wring our hands and we take a look at all the terrible things that the devil does on this earth and we say, Lord, why don't you stop him? Lord, why don't you just slay him? Why don't you just knock him down? Why don't you just dethrone the devil right now? Well, you know why? Because God has given man a a measure of freedom, a measure of choice, a measure of autonomy. We can choose. And do you know why the devil is the ruler of this world? Because mankind has elected him. Every day in the heart of man, take the mass of humanity around this earth, and every day there's a vote. Who do you want to rule over this earth? The devil or the Lord God? And I tell you, so far every day since the day Adam fell, mankind has popularly elected Satan to rule over this earth. And there's going to come a day when God completely ruins that reign. But right now, Jesus is destroying the works of the devil. And Jesus began this by what he did in his life, his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And Jesus' purpose there, if you saw it there in verse 8, it's to destroy the works of the devil. Friends, please notice that. Not to neutralize the, the works of the devil, not to alleviate the works of the devil, not to limit the works of the devil, but to destroy them. That's convicting to me. Sometimes I just kind of want to limit the devil's work. You know, okay, you know, I'll let him have this here, but no further. I want to alleviate. I want to pay. No, Jesus wants to destroy it. This gives us another clue, doesn't it, on something that I think touches a lot of lives. Some people are unnecessarily afraid of the devil. They go around fearing all the time what the devil might do against them. And they live their lives bound up with this kind of fear. Friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a child of God, as you walk in Jesus, the devil's afraid of you. He knows that he carry, you carry within yourself the power to destroy him. And as we walk in Jesus, we can help in seeing the, the works of the devil destroyed. But friends, please notice the point here in verse 9. It says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. Born of God. Friends, here's the whole point. Is that when Jesus Christ comes and gives us this new birth, when we are born of God, it changes something in our lives. And if nothing has changed, it's fair to say, have we been born of God? Sin is no longer our environment when we're a child of God. It doesn't mean we can't visit it, but it's not our environment. Let me put it to you this way. Just imagine, it's just sort of a fanciful illustration, so don't read anything into it. But just uh, let's just say that the human race, in our fallenness, we're like people who live under the water. You know, we're, we're a, a sea-living people, and we live under the water, and we have gills or something that enable us to take oxygen out of the water. And that's where we live. That's our lives. It's lived in that environment. But then when we come to Jesus Christ, he lifts us up out of our fallenness and he puts us on the earth and he takes away our gills and he gives us the ability to breathe oxygen just in the air, in the atmosphere. 
And there we are. We're different people now because we've been born of him. We're, we're new people. Now, that person who breathes air, they can go and they can go back in the water and go swimming, though they shouldn't. They can go swimming underwater and submerge themselves under the water. But my friends, they can't stay under that water for very long, right? It's an impossibility. It's no longer their environment. God has lifted them up out of it. Friends, if if your life is lived in that habitual, continual sin, if you would say that the environment of your life is this habitual sin, then friends, have you ever had that change in life, really? Let me express it to you this way. Many people wrongly think that God's real purpose, God's real goal in humanity, the plan he's trying to fulfill, is to make us all nice people. You know, let's just have some more niceness in this world. And, well, there's some mean people over there, and some mean, let's just make them nicer. You know, we'll just love one another, and look, I'll send my son to be an example. And everybody can look at my son and see how nice he is, and we can all be like Jesus. And shouldn't we all be nicer in this? And that's what God's goal is. Let's just make a, a bunch of nicer people. Friends, can I tell you, that's not God's goal. God's goal isn't to make nice people, but to make new men and new women. That's what he wants to do. He doesn't want nice people. He wants new men. Now, new men and new women are nicer than they were before, and that work's going on in their life, but that's not the goal. I guess what I'm trying to say is is plain and simple. Don't be the nicest person ever to go to hell. Being a nice person isn't going to get you to heaven. Being a new man or a new woman will. And if you're a new man, if you're a new woman in Jesus Christ, it's going to show in your life. The environment of sin isn't the same. You don't relate to it in the same way that you did before. Oh, friends, this is pretty challenging stuff. But I think God speaks directly to our hearts. And a great question that I think we need to address this morning is, wouldn't it be terrible, terrible, if someone in our midst perished in eternity because they thought that all God really required of us was to be nice. They didn't really understand that that what God wants from us is to have this new birth be real in our lives. And they thought, well, you know, I go to church and I do nice things and I'm a good person in my family and this and that. Isn't that enough? Well, no, it's not enough, my friends. Now, I think right now God can speak to your heart and let you know whether or not you've been made a new person in Jesus Christ. And you'll know. You'll know because your life will give evidence to it. 